is Fair and Square, a podcast from Hudson Sandler. This is the Fair and Square podcast from Hudson Sandler. I'm Adam Batstone, and in these podcasts, we'll talk to a variety of people from different walks of life who are making a difference in business, science, politics, the arts, and the world we live in. This is an opportunity to hear in more depth from those with experience, perspective, or opinions that shape contemporary society. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Charles Clover, co-founder and director of the Blue Marine Foundation, which, as its name suggests, is an organisation dedicated to improving the quality and sustainability of the world's oceans. Charles is a former journalist who has dedicated his life and work to projects which protect the marine environment. His recent book, Rewilding the Seas, How to Save Our Oceans, is a guide to what is being done and what can and probably must be done if we are to maintain the relationship with the sea that we've relied on for thousands of years. So, Charles, welcome to Fair and Square. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Adam. So, rewilding, it's a relatively familiar term in relation to farmland and agriculture, can you just explain what it means when we're talking about the marine environment? We're talking pretty much the same thing. We're talking about letting nature have a bit more space to recover and bring back the plenty that we once had, or to go back in and where we've eradicated species like the native oyster, reintroducing them. That's what it means. But there are differences when it comes to the sea, crucial differences. One is that this is an entirely wild ecosystem, but the, the relative amount of wildness is the thing. Uh, we have actually degraded quite a lot of nearby seas, particularly off the shores of the UK. And so while the sea in most people's mind is wild, this is a degraded wildness. And the way you invest in it, uh, very topically in current times when food security is important, the way you invest in the sea is by leaving it alone or leaving large chunks of it alone. And uh, my contention is that we should be having more leaving it alone for three reasons. One is actually climate change. The sea is our friend and we need to our friend to help us store more carbon from the atmosphere than we are currently doing. And that's quite easy. But the actions we need to do to achieve that are bringing back our coastal Ecosystems like salt marsh and seagrass and uh, in the tropics, mangroves. But also we need to start looking at the forests of the sea, the kelp that stretches out beyond the coastline. And we need to look at the seabed, um, which we are currently trawling and dredging in places that are releasing carbon. And maybe we shouldn't be doing that. And then, of course, we need to introduce uh, a sense of rewilding into the rather dry business of fisheries management because we have overfished let's face it a lot of the fish that we depend upon or used to in our uk waters uh, we we have shown that we can restore populations of fish the sterling example of the bluefin tuna is quite fantastic because uh, thanks to a campaign there was an enormous movement around Europe that was uh, that enough was enough and that this iconic fish should not be fished to extinction. And Europe and Japan and all the countries represented in the 
the Atlantic fisheries nations got together and said, right, we're going to impose proper scientific uh, advice upon this and we're going to act on it. And, and they cut the, the fishing season by three quarters. And now there are bluefin tuna turning up everywhere. It's bloody marvellous. But why can't we do that with all the other populations of fish in UK waters? This is a work in progress. It's, it's not complete. So it's interesting to hearing you talking there, Charles, between this idea that rewilding in many ways is just about letting nature restore the sea as a sort of you know, wild habitat, as opposed to what you were saying about active measures which have to be taken to protect the marine environment. Where do you think that balance is? I mean, is, is this really just a question of, of mankind keeping their hands off for a while and letting the sea kind of restore itself? Never in the last 200 years has the sea been healthier than when uh, than after the, the two world wars. And, and so we need to find an artificial way of doing this short of war, because man is not very good at, at restraining his activities. And yet, for our own food security, we need to invest in the sea. And for our climate change, we need to, uh, our mitigation, we need to invest in the sea. And we just got to get our heads around this. We, it's about food security. You've talked about, you know, the successful example in relation to bluefin tuna. To what extent is this being driven by organisations like your own and, and, and from the UK? Or, or is, is this part of a wider kind of global movement where, you know, the UK is just one of many players? The UK is definitely one of many players, but the, the the virtuous conservation decisions in the world have been largely driven by organizations like mine, I, I have to tell you. Um, when you leave it to large scientific bureaucracies and politicians, they frequently and indeed regularly, annually, take the wrong advice. Trawling has been allowed to r let rip, and really that technology um, has never been environmentally assessed like other industries have to be in order to operate in the sea. And frankly, uh, very often it doesn't need to be there at all. We could creel for uh, langoustines, which is what they're actually after. They're throwing away the slightly less valuable cod, but we need the cod. We need the langoustines. So, and we need to respect the seabed. What about the role of organisations like United Nations? And obviously one thinks about the COP climate conferences, are they more influential than individual governments in trying to curb the excesses of industry or politicians? The great thing about the, the, the oceans and the, the on, uh, proximate seas generally is that you can make virtuous decisions that benefit communities off our very shores without having to involve too many other nations. So I would say that while the UN and the, the regional fisheries management organizations which exist below the UN are important in the sea. I mean, that is absolutely essential. Without that UN law enabling marine protected areas to be created in the high seas, we won't get anywhere at all. It can't be done. So that's important. But the, there is a, a, great, a greater ability to act locally and regionally in the oceans, which is quite different to the climate. But in the climate, the Framework Convention on Climate Change under the UN has begun to accept finally and belatedly, I mean, it's been going for 35 years or so, and um, it, it has not included 
nature-based solutions in the sea. But it has begun to. We need to include the continental shelves because we're doing a tremendous amount of damage to the seabed, as much as the global aviation industry, according to some estimates, by trawling them. And maybe we don't need to do that. This needs to be included in our thinking about about climate change. We really haven't included the ocean enough. It's striking in your book, Charles, the number of incidents where you talk about individuals who really understand the sea and in many cases have made a living from the sea, who are doing exceptional work to try and protect that environment. Is it your impression that actually, or, or while it by definition is a very local activity, that that kind of influence has more positive impact than governments who may or may not take an interest? Well, it's a very good question because I think uh, the sea is out of sight, out of mind for most people. What, what what exists below the waves is really only seen by fishermen and divers and environmentalists who take an interest. So the people who understand it best are very often fishermen. And actually, some of the most virtuous things that have happened in the world, some of these tendrils of hope that I write about, have come about at the instigation of fishermen. So it's a fallacy to say that it's the environmentalist versus the fishermen. It's the sustainable fishermen and the environmentalists against the great nomadic fleets who don't care. And and the best example of this of all is in the British overseas territories, where the British government has created a thing called the Blue Belt, with the active involvement of the 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 overseas territories populations themselves. And the most spectacularly and and most beautifully of all, and I write about this in the book, in, in Tristan Acuna, where this tiny population of people. 250-odd. They live on the side of a volcano. They decided, after an expedition went and showed them what existed on the other islands, the astonishing biodiversity of the other islands, of the albatrosses and uh, and penguins that live there, they decided that their environment was so special that though they depended entirely for their living upon fishing for lobster, that they would protect two-thirds of their waters as completely no-take, as a, a, a gift to the heritage of mankind, as a gift to biodiversity, and as an insurance policy for themselves, for the future. And obviously the comparison between a small island nation with a very small population and an island like the UK with a population of 60 million people, where <laughs> the notion of us fishing purely for our own needs it, it 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 doesn't necessarily work at that scale does it? It, it, it it's it's impossible to apply the same approach when you've got a population of multi-millions all of whom like eating fish we would have more fish to eat as the national federation of fish friars have been telling us recently we would have more domestic cod now that we have no access to Russian cod if we'd actually managed our cod properly. So there is actually an incentive to, if we, for food security of this nation going forward, that we should manage these fish populations properly because they would be massively bigger. I mean, I think there's, there's estimates of, of, you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of cod could be caught 
from the North Sea rather than you know under fifty thousand, probably near thirty thousand uh, in the whole of the North Sea, including the Northern North Sea, in Norway waters, if we'd actually manage these populations properly. So I, I, I think that even if you want to eat fish, it's not either a sensible business or ecological decision to just bumble along doing it as badly as we have been doing. And, and indeed, we, we now accept that these fish populations are not only ecologically important to the functioning of other ecology in the sea, but they're also a national asset. They're owned by the Queen. And, you know, if you were managing any other national asset like oil or gas as incompetently as we have been managing our fish populations like the cod, you as a minister would be standing up in front of an awful lot of select committees, if not actually in the dock. Talk about the work of Blue Marine Foundation. Is it primarily about trying to inform and educate and lobby, or are you actually kind of getting your hands dirty and doing kind of projects in coastal areas to try and you know walk the walk as well as talking the talk the latter we were set up i helped to set us up after the campaign to save the bluefin tuna because we felt that not enough charities and we are a charity were, were actually getting their hands dirty and trying to bring about outcomes to have the impact that they wish to have and so they, they wanted to talk about it Talking about it isn't going to get you anywhere because nobody does anything. So we we were set up specifically to do things, and and I've stuck to that, and and uh, along with um, our very uh, good trustees. And so, for example, where the uh, where the government were persuaded to take the virtuous decision uh, to ban trawling and dredging in Lime Bay, but didn't do anything else and didn't set up a sensible fisheries management system to make these fishermen who had given up some rights actually benefit from this, we decided to step in and try and help the fishermen get a better living from what was obviously a good thing to do and a more sustainable thing to do. And by Jove, actually, if you ban trawling and dredging in inshore waters, that means out to six miles, you get an awful lot back you get more than you had before so it's economically a better thing to do too and i just don't see why we don't manage all our coastal waters that way the issue of climate change more broadly is obviously front and center of a lot of people's minds and i think people who aren't necessarily actively engaged maybe could be forgiven for despairing when they see floods in pakistan and droughts in various parts of Europe. Do, do you worry that there is a sort of league table of <laughs> environmental concerns and the question around marine sustainability and the quality of ocean waters is just one of many climate-related issues and it kind of has to fight for its place in terms of people's attention and the efforts made to address it, or, or, or is that not a, a, a fair way to represent the situation? I think it's 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 absolutely spot on because, in terms of the money that's spent on uh, on marine conservation, 
I think it, 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 it until quite recently, it was something like 4% of what was spent on, on the rest of it, on climate change, on, on terrestrial conservation and so on. And yet, I think is where the, 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 the scales are beginning to fall from our eyes, because as I say, the, we're not doing very well in this climate change mitigation game show. We're not doing it. Uh, we're not doing nearly enough of it, are we? And, you know, the ocean is our friend. It's time to phone a friend. I mean, there are really quite a lot of things that we should be doing anyway, which we're not doing because some genius in government has decided that we can't quite quantify what they are at the moment, but we all know that they're absorbing carbon. Policy is so many decades behind the reality of the of the world we are living in, affected by climate change. I, I slightly... Um, at times I despair. But actually, the great thing is that in, in the sea, you can do something about it. But, you know, also the examples that I bring forward in my book of, of where, you know, case after case, you know, it's in the economic interest as well as the ecological interest to do this. And it's really just the convenience of the negotiators, the the complacency of the bureaucracies to go on doing it in a bad way in the ocean as you said before what happens under the surface is not so visible to most people and therefore doesn't necessarily seem to be a priority particularly in the time that we're living at the moment where obviously there is a lot of pressure on public spending cost of living impact etc are you worried that some of the initiatives which may be would take government attention or government money are, are just going to get, you know, they're not a priority. The house isn't on fire. Sorry, we, we haven't got the time or bandwidth to look at that now. I mean, my, my point is that it is actually positive economically to make these decisions. Why should we trawl in the kelp belt? Why is that a good idea? Why should we go on respecting the sacred freedom to go on destroying our environment. We shouldn't. It's ecologically and economically better to do something else. And so there's a, the, the, the paradigm is changing. You know, I think that the, the, the public consciousness on this subject has gone up enormously since my previous book, The End of the Lion, was a pretty bleak book about overfishing. The paradigm is changing, but there are two currents. You know, one is the is is the the fast one of, of, of the right thing being done, and the other one's the sort of slow back current of turpitude and ineptitude. You know, in in very few other areas would we not just say, well, this is the way we do it now. We don't do that, but we're beginning to get there. You know, if we can, I I, I get take great hope from the things that have happened, from the bluefin tuna, from the from the blue belt. These are the largest marine protected areas on earth this is the largest network of marine protected areas on earth in all of the ocean just about all of the oceans and from the fact that you know we as britain actually decided to ban trawling and dredging on the dogger bank this summer area of 12000 square kilometers a massive area formerly known as the place where you caught all the fish not anymore not so many because we have absolutely hammered it. But by not hammering it, we may be actually investing in, in the future of the North Sea and, and in its ecological and economic success in the future. Very good. Well, that is a positive thought 
I hope, Charles, on which to end. I should permit you the opportunity, for the benefit of those people listening who want to know more about this, just explain how you can get a copy of your book, Rewilding the Seas, at bookshops and online, presumably. Yep, you can buy Rewilding the Sea at all good bookshops, at Amazon, um, and uh, my personal preference would be to go for a, a book chain that you know and love and will want to support. Very good. So my thanks to Charles Clover, and thanks, of course, to you, for listening as well. You can find out more about Blue Marine Foundation on the show notes, which are available on our website, hudsonsandler.com. You can also find links to other episodes of the Fair and Square podcast and more information about Hudson Sandler's work in the UK and around the world. And you can follow Hudson Sandler on Twitter at Hudson Sandler. But until the next episode, from me, Adam Batstone, goodbye for now. To find out more about Hudson Sandler, our team, our culture and our thinking, visit our website, hudsonsandler.com. Hudson Sandler.